Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock. With Kim Payne. And Otto Mullins. Welcome to week three of The Stand. Episode three, chapter three. It's getting good, to say the least. I'm getting more and more sucked into it every time. Uh, so last week we kind of just like got real sucked into the story and just went right into like analyzing the chapters. Yeah. Um, so this week I think we do want to do the breakdown a little bit before we go into it. I'm going to let you give kind of a quick summary of what you read. Please like pop in like when I mess (laughs) it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so chapter 21 is Stu and Stu pretty much is just telling us what is happening when he's trapped in here. And we find out that he's been moved to another place. Atlanta has been breached. Now he is under guard with men with guns. Right. And they come in with little baggies on their hands and they have 45s and they're like, hey, don't do anything. Don't don't cough like you did last time. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I feel like at this exact moment, Stu is very matter of fact. Yeah. He's not trying to to give you any anything that you're not it, it that you don't need. It's just very matter of fact. It's very much Stu like uh point blank like these are the facts that i have to work with right Right. now so then we get into 22 which we see uh lee uh len i think is what i ended up figuring out len Crichton and starkey chapter took me by surprise not gonna lie essentially the president calls and uh fires starkey because he's not doing a good enough job at covering up the containment and uh puts len Crichton in charge and so starkey goes into the uh which this was not what I was expecting at all. He goes down into Code Blue, which so essentially he's still on the base where Campion, him and Crichton are still on the base where Campion escaped from, which I didn't realize until this moment either. Right. He goes down into the cafeteria where he's been talking about the guy who's with the face in the soup this whole time, lifts his suit face off, wipes his face off, and then he goes and sits down and shoots himself. Right. Yeah. And we have this, yeah. it's oof. Yeah. So we'll get down to that because there's a real good illusion at the end. Well, too. and there's a lot of other information in that chapter too. That's that, really like important. with the people and like there's also like there's this like one really like important part where he's like, and he, why didn't he get the soup off of his eyebrow? And it's just like I really liked the the passing of the will in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like it was really good. So then we get into chapter twenty three. 10 out of 10 chapter. This was in, this is how like such a good introduction of a character. Like this is just the true definition of chaotic, like evil to me. Like he's not doing anything positive. He's not doing anything. Well, he's doing a lot of negative, but he's not doing it to help anyone. He's right. just he's, doing it because he it, finds it to be totally fun. random. It's totally random. He likes violence. That's yes. what it seems to be. He wants to be in the center of the violence. And it really seems as you read more about him, and basically, chapter 23, we're introduced to a character named Randall Flagg. Um, we find out a lot about him, and it's literally just him walking down the road and thinking. And the way he talks, the the personality that he has, just the way he talks about things that were so long ago, you can really tell he's almost a timeless character. And then at the end of the chapter, he floats. So yeah. it's like, okay, let's find out what's happening here. We get into chapter 24, which is Lloyd. We find out more about Lloyd. And Lloyd, and the reason I'm glad Lloyd got introduced is because I like his lawyer a lot. I do. Like, Devin's is, is great. Yep. So Lloyd is in prison. He's on death row, and he's in, he got caught. Well, he's in, not on death row yet. Oh, he's, he's on trial to he's, go he's to he's death gonna, row. He's going to be on trial to go to death row. And uh, essentially, we get a small like little courtroom drama scene in the middle of all of this and um lloyd's lawyer essentially says like if you want to get out of this this is what you have to do Mm -hmm. and they try to get out of it 
essentially he was caught in the middle of the robbery with dead bodies, with a gun, and they're pinning the whole thing on him. And because folks dead, I yeah. mean, he's he's all that's left to mm-hmm. pin it on, and they know what he did. They, they, he was already on the run, so. And then at the end, uh, he's out in the yard and he gets kicked in the balls. Yeah, and that's the chapter. Uh, we go to chapter twenty-five, which is Nick. Uh, this was the chapter kind of where you really start to realize, like, things are not going to go back to normal at, no, at all. No, um, not anytime soon. This is really. This is the introduction is, to the wasteland. To me. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, like, like this is yeah. Nick now. Like, all right, this is the scenario. Like, how are you going to survive? Yes. And it so essentially, he is still he's with Johnny's wife Jane Baker, and he's helping her and. Sadly, she passes, and she asks him to help her do a, get a dress and all of these things. Um, he goes back down to the cell to find out that Vince was now dead, mm-hmm. the one that was sick. And then he finds uh, – he goes – it's literally just him going back and forth between these, like, yeah, two it's, places. It's showing Nick being – you know, so just trying caring to take care of people and be caring and take care of all of the things. And, and the entire time, his, his, his only just regret. sense of responsibility. And, yeah, and his only regret is that he just can't sit there and tell them that it's going to be okay. Right. Like, he can't give them any it, comfort any because, he comfort because he can't talk. So yeah. in this entire situation, the only thing he's doing is being hard on himself because he can't be more. Right. Mm. And oof, yeah. Nick's a 10 out of 10 character. Ooh, 26. Uh, this is, I think that this is my favorite chapter in the first third of the book because this is the chapter where we get to find out that the the government hasn't been as good at this as they think they are. This I is knew this where, was your favorite chapter when you said that this is where we should stop the first episode the first time. <laughs> and then I got halfway through it and I was like, oh, this is oof. why she wanted to read to there. It's really good because it stops it from just being like a. Chapter 26 is essentially a really uh, segmented chapter, but it's pretty decently long. But we get a big overview of what's happening across the country from different points of view. I really feel like it's almost uh, okay. From a um, from a feet on the ground view, you know, from what is happening in Portland, Maine, and what is happening in this place. Like, what would a businessman be doing? What's a college student doing? How is a banker doing? Right. Um, And we find out that college campuses are under siege. Um, A news crew takes over a station, and they start to uh, pretty much show on the news what's actually happening, and they get uh, killed by the government. Uh, there's a guy that's going around distributing newspapers and it's him like it's his last act and they're all like it's just little vignettes yes and they're really like really beautiful written and really nice they establish a person and a character really well and really quickly and establish the their um, intent the intent really well Mm -hmm. and and portrays every man really well you know because there's a little vignette that represents just all different walks of life and then so. it's you know it shows uh what the newspaper mm-hmm. and we'll go through these a little bit more yeah. but essentially yeah this is what we come down to is we get a bunch of different things and then now towards the end of it we get communiques with people uh with uh people reporting to Crichton now that he's in charge right. and we also get uh, there's this part there's where like there it is a lot there's a lot this is also Probably the part we're going to end up talking about the most, if I'm being honest, just because there's this part where, like, it really shows me, like, that a little bit of his writing is antiquated. Because when he talks about the group of black men taking over the entire station, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of racism in the way that he writes things. 
Um, but I don't think it's him as a person. I think it's just the way that society in the seventies and like institutionalized well, and society I mean, was. And he, I mean, he was born in 1947. Yeah. So I mean, so. it, it was. Time does not do favors in racism. Right. And, you know, I think that when we get to his more modern stories, you're going to find that, you know, he continued to grow as a person. Yeah. And so there's a lot of And that's all you can hope when we're reading a 42-year-old novel. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, The amount of Tennessee Williams plays that I've read where he never becomes a better person is disappointing, where I never want to read or see a Tennessee Williams play ever again. Right. So the fact that an artist can grow and become a better person is what makes their work worthwhile. Right. Uh, chapter 27, Larry. I did have this – I have this little like inkling in my head that Larry is very representative of Stephen King himself. This is the closest version of Stephen King in this situation. Hmm. I don't – I don't hate that theory. I just feel like the the, the guy that kind of just doesn't feel like he belongs in this superstar world, but he's still working really hard because it is what he wants and he's getting taken in by all the drugs and the money and everything. Huh. And slowly he's getting consumed by it, that he gets down on himself a little bit about it, but he has the people around him that are still lovingly caring about him. And this is why we're doing this. Yeah, right. Because I had never I'm really thinking thought that I, I I never put that together, but man, and just that like, is so true. Because I, I he just went from like, zero to hero, like boom. Yeah, and I just feel like if I was a novelist writing my own like end of the world story i would also write a really cool chapter where i just hook up with this beautiful rich woman from the upper east side too like that sounds fantastic right and oh my god and, <laughs> and timing wise because you know carrie came out in 74 and he started writing this in february of 75 so absolutely he went from he might you even know, have like a similar story where he like has a friend where he was like, dude, like, are you really being smart with your money? Do you do you know like these people that are doing your coke? Like, <laughs> right. that's yours, <laughs> right? So, and anyway, yeah. So I I have a that's how I've been feeling about Larry. <laughs> then we get into chapter twenty eight, which is the chapter where I changed my entire mind about Franny. One really fun thing that I noticed as I was reopening the book is the last chapter that we talk about Franny. Her last the last sentence is eat all of your pie, Franny, eat it all up. And then the first sentence in this one is there was a strawberry pie in the fridge. Mm -hmm. So it's just, oh, that's clever. Um, but also we start to see, I think one of the coolest things that Stephen did is he really subverted me in my expectations of how her father was going to die. And her father dying didn't have the impact. It's what she has to do now that her father is dead, like taking care of the body that has the impact. This and is, I never expected it. This is the chapter where Franny gets a soul. Yes. And also we find out that uh, she's probably giving birth to the Antichrist, it seems. Um, she's disassociating well, for literally. at least that's her nightmare. I'm between her nightmare and what Randall Flagg says at the end when he says, it's time to be reborn. I looks like it's time. It's coming soon. Uh, and then we're also introduced to a pregnant woman at the exact same time. I can put one and one together. So, well, it's an interesting theory. And also, okay. And then at the end of chapter 26, there's this guy with the uh, sandwich board, uh, a khaki shorts with a sandwich oh, board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The time of disappearance is here. Christ the Lord returneth soon. Prepare to meet your God. Behold, the hearts of sinners were broken. The great shall be abased, and the abased shall may be made great. The evil days are at hand. Woe to the Ozion. That, I haven't taken any time to like break it down. But I really feel like that is as ominous as everything else that's been coming. 
And then we get to 28. This chapter is incredible. And essentially, it's literally just Franny burying her dad yeah, in the backyard. Which is really tragic. While simultaneously really, being like said, ogled by is, a 16-year-old. But this is the chapter that gives Franny a soul. Yeah. And we meet Harold. Yeah. Is Harold, like, I didn't, if Harold ends up being a mainstay, like, man, I get it. Yeah. It's wild that at this point now, death has become so commonplace. And, like, it's just a throwaway concept now. Right. And, like, at the beginning of the book, they, 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 that first death appeared as a car crash. And that's how historic and big and monumental it was. And, and now, now it's, it's just, oh, it's barely a footnote. It's it. an off note. It's yeah. a, like, hey, sorry that happened. All right. But the story. Right. It's in, yeah. It's interesting how in 28 how pages, common, 200, yeah, 28 chapters. 28 chapters, how just commonplace it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes and she buries her dad and then she has a wild dream. So we get into chapter 29 and it is my boy Stu. This is like confirmation that he's awesome. And essentially uh, the first like little bit of it, we find out like what has been happening with Stu and like what like he's learned while he's been there. And essentially he's put together that they are going to come and kill him. And it's going to be a specific man named Elder who's going to come and kill him. And so he come, tries to come in. And then he says that he's just so, he's so good, and he's like, "Oh my God, there's a rat behind you!" And the guy's like, "What?" And then he gets up and he smashes him with a chair, WWE style. Mm-hmm. And then he takes his gun and he's like running out of the facility, and everybody in the facility is dying. So essentially, like they abandon the facility, dead. or already dead, mm-hmm. and they've abandoned the facility, and they sent in the guy with the respirator and the full mask and everything to go kill the only living man in there, Stu. The only healthy. The only healthy person in there. So Stu fights Elder, and as he's like, he's just so worried that somebody's going to get him, but he's just running and nobody's there except for dead people and people dying. And he gets into this stairwell, and then he sees the monster from It or something, or he sees Randall Flagg or the a, devil. Yeah, he he's he definitely has a vision. It's it's it could be delirium, because he has definitely not slept for a while. We do, right before this, we see this little thing at Radiology that says, close until further notice, Randall. And then he pops out and he's like, oh my god, I'm finally alive. And he like walks away. Chapter 30. Um, this is, like I said, this is the yeah, stage is set. This is, yeah, we get to go back to Arnett. And it's almost, this is, these couple of chapters, I just want to correct something that I've been saying. I don't think Stephen King writes for his books to be made into a movie. I think he writes to convince people that like movies to read his books. I think that that is absolutely a more accurate statement than your other one he writes to emulate movies he writes to emulate a screen he likes to almost put it in like the point of view of a camera like there's points where he talks about like giving them uh he like direct quote he says giving them the pan shot of hell um he says at one point when he's in the uh um, tv studio uh and they're doing uh, it's when the, all of the people have taken over the tv studio and the way that, like, it's just, like, these, like, long... Like, he describes it as though, like, you're just watching a camera slowly pan out on this town. And that's what this chapter reminds me of. It's just... The stage is set. We're in these... We're in the the wasteland now. Right. This yeah. is Act 1, half break for me. The sun deserted Arnett. The town grew dark under the wing of night. The town was, except for the chur and whisper of small animals and the tinkle of Tony Leo Meister's wind chimes. Silent. And silent. Like, that's the end of Act 1. That's the end of Act Have you ever wondered, wow, I wonder what Kim and Otto from first time through think about the movie about this book that they're reading? Well, now you can know if you pay us money on Patreon. <laughs>
Every decade, First Time Through runs a poll, a contest, and a million dollar giveaway on Twitter. Make sure to follow us so that way you can be involved in the next decade million dollar giveaway. Decade million dollar giveaway is hypothetical, theoretical, and not real. Welcome back. Here's some analysis. Uh, it's great. End of analysis. It's really good. It's getting... Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a 1,200-page novel, so it's going to have some a slow start. Like, you got to build up some stuff. And I feel like, you know, I would say that what we've finished and done now is, like I've said, it's Act 1. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's, what, 300 pages, so it's about a fourth of the way, a quarter of the way through. I think that, like, if a quarter of your novel, the first quarter is exposition, that's not bad. I think right. that's, and, not, like, and, that's I mean, a good strategy. pages, yes. I mean, because if you wrote a 400-page novel... The first hundred pages should be, yeah. you know, the buildup. And, yeah, and, and I think and, that like that would mean then to me that like this next, you know, five hundred or so is going to be this big meaty climax build, and then a little bit of like action and release, and then we're gonna have like a really like. I feel like the the end of this is going to be very Tolkien esque because we're gonna have to like check in with like four hundred characters to f- like truly end the story. Well, I mean, unless yeah. they all die. Well, and. Then that could happen in a way, but I the way it yeah you know what I mean it's like see. it's like oh it's and now not- Aragorn has gone on to the world of humans and now Frodo and then yeah but anyways yeah. I digress that's not the point we're not there yet <laughs> um, we'll get there we do like we we got to start off with Stu today which was really good and like Stu's chapters are always really. They're the chapters where you get a lot of the information about, like, what's the government's doing, if it's right. not a chapter directly from the government themselves. Right. Well, you get the, the government actions from a civilian perspective. Mm-hmm. You get to see, like, what is definitely, like, pretty ominous, because like, what doesn't make w- much sense. You know, he wasn't patient zero, but he was patient one. Pretty much, Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I feel like his wife was, or Campion's wife and baby were probably well, patient yeah. one and two. One and but two. pretty but much, like, he's in the top five. Yeah. Like, he did good. Um, and he, and he's the anomaly. The first anomaly, the too. The first that anomaly. They, he's the only one they know of, I think, as well. Well, I mean, I think that by this point they've figured out that there are people who are immune to it. But he's one that they have in their jurisdiction. Grasp. He Grasp. is. He is in their jurisdiction. Is such a government word, <laughs> whereas it's like, yeah, that makes it sound like not as evil as it very clearly has been. Right. Um. Uh, so we get a lot of. I think one of the real fun things here is that Stephen King is starting to build this world that doesn't stop moving when you're not with a character now. Mm-hmm. So we'll get these things where we join back up with Stu and Stu's like, here's all the stuff that's happened, but he does it in a way that it's like, since we've done this, I've been noticing this, this, and this. So it catches you up while simultaneously giving you new information. Yes. I really like how the world hasn't doesn't stop now. Where right. At the beginning, yeah, it was like not... stop and start and stop and start. So that way you could catch up with these characters. But now it's just really like the world is happening and we're just trying to like keep up with the major story that's unraveling. Right. And I and again, I think that this is that trying to um, portray the speed with which this has happened. Yeah. It felt like it was very like slow moving and, blow, and like nothing much happening. But it wasn't slow moving. It was just all happening simultaneously, and we had to read about it individually. Hmm. Let's see. Or, well, I feel like until the disease happens in those places, like, okay, no, what if it seems more like 
as the disease starts to become more prevalent in a place, that's when it starts to get pulled into like the main storyline. So like Franny in particular, I noticed until this recent chapter, hers were very segmented and out of the timeline. But now with this chapter of her burying her dad and everything, mm -hmm. she's going back in and she's like, there was this town hall. There was all these things that happened. Right. So as like your story is really starting to be hit by the disease – you start to get pulled into it. Like first Nick's first segment, there's almost nothing about the disease. So it's mm -hmm. not really like included in the story. And like, it's very stoppy and starty. That's what it like. I, I guess I'm just trying to like agree with you and like add more to it Yeah, because it really is like, he's replicating the disease through the chapters. Yes. Which is really beautifully written and really a cool way to like show that physically in your art. Um, but Stu, yeah, not, like there's not really much here that like that needs to be delved into because a lot of it is just stuff that we've already known. Um, we do get the first like little peek that the news is being uh, controlled by someone off screen, um, and this is the first time where he thinks about trying to escape. Yeah, well, I mean, and and it shows that things are starting to fall apart. You know, they've moved to. Another facility um, in Stovington, Vermont. That's important. Is it? Why? I mean, proximity. Think to Ogonquit? Oh, think yeah. About, and then he started going think south. About who is now in the Northeast? So it's going to be Franny, Franny Stu, Stu, and, and Larry, Larry are in all the in the Northeast. Yeah. And then uh, Nick's still in Arkansas. Right. And Starkey is in. All, or no, California. Starkey's dead now. Starkey's dead. But Crichton's in California. Yep. Um, and uh, Randall Flagg was in, he was walking, we haven't met him yet yet, but in the chapter he said he was walking towards Nevada. Yeah. So we know he's out somewhere there. So he's in the Southwest. So I guess, yeah, we have our big three are starting to like actually like be near each other. That is important. Okay. So anyway, but they still did test, um, but the schedule had become slipshod, you know, it, it, they were just going through the motions. Mm -hmm. They were just going through the motions. And, you know, Stu's a smart guy. Stu is not necessarily classically educated because life dealt him kind of a crappy hand, but Stu's a smart guy. He, he knows what's going on. He's very, he's a quiet observational man. Yes. And he does a very good job at like doing that. Um, and essentially that chapter just points us into no, like saying Stu's going to get out of here. And while you're not with Stu, he's going to be planning that. Right. And so while he's planning yeah, that, yeah, let's that go check seat. in with let's these other characters. Right, right. Well, and I think that it's important that the, the end of this chapter, um, he says, you know, they've taken him to a part of country that is alien to him. He's from Texas. He's from East Texas, so you know he's not used he's to trees. Not used to trees and grass, and yep. you know, so he's really out of his element in all of the ways. Now, yep, you know, he was out of his element anyway, but now not only is he out of his mental, uh, he's out of his element. And a character's way. greatest change comes when you put them in that level of discomfort, right? And so. We go into chapter 22, and I think what's really fun is Stephen does uh, – Stephen. I'm sorry, Stephen. Steve does <laughs> chapter 21 about, like, here is what Stu is experiencing from the government, and now we go into chapter 22, and it's like, here's why he's experiencing this. Yes. The government is falling apart. Right. And – The control has been lost. I mean, it was lost 
you know, when there was that 40 second delay. Mm -hmm. But now it's, you know, it's spiraling really bad out of control. And I think that, you know, the fact that Starkey gets fired and, and the repercussions of that, what he does with that. Um, but the, at the bottom of page 175 here, like right here. The Rome Falls or the Yates Park? The Rome Park Falls. Yeah. Rome Falls. That is that right there. Well, it obviously, and then from this point on in chapter 26, especially, we hear about how Red China and Russia right. are starting to develop it. And then it says here, it, right the here. iron and bamboo curtains. Right. Our people got those vials one week ago. Mm -hmm. They believe they contain radioactive particles to be charted by our sky cruise satellites. That's all they need to know, isn't it? So essentially. So right there, that one sentence, they have intentionally. Put it, it everywhere a, else. It was an accident at first, but now it has been intentionally sent all over the world. Because they and later we hear it in the president's speech the geneva convention has outlawed any kind of germ warfare mm -hmm. so it looks like if it's just an accident in america and it's only in america that america has engineered it so they have operatives in china and russia that yep. disperse the virus so that way the president can say it's not just us it's in irish it's in china and russia as well yep and that's his last act as like the person in charge mm -hmm. and that is not and man do you what think the that heck, man you, you intentionally think, mm -hmm. infected the entire world do you in chapter 26 we read about that old man who had a secret source who was an older captain who knew everything about called blue and he just had sunken eyes and he looked dejected and he didn't really seem like he like was had much will left to live do you think that's starkey no because starkey goes and I figured it was Starkey before all of this. I think Starkey knew he was getting murdered. I think I think he knew he was getting fired. I mean, yeah, I guess that's probably and I feel like a possibility. Yeah. I don't know. It just made me like think like he he just specifically described that guy and like it made me think that like maybe Starkey was the one that was like clearing his conscience a little bit to try and get like a little bit of the truth out there. Um, but who knows? Uh. I don't know. Starkey could also. I might be just really trying to humanize a person after like the grisly death that they're about to experience. Yeah. So Starkey gets fired. We have this real fun section, and it's just these really human moments that Steve adds, where he's talking, and Starkey says, "My daughter gave me this book of poems by a man named Yeats," and he's like, "Have you ever heard of Yeats?" And Crichton's like, "Ah, I think so." And he says, "Considering and rejecting the idea of telling Starkey, the man's name was pronounced Yeats." And it's just this, he can tell, he knows his friend's about to die. Right. It, he got fired from a top classified secret military position. You're, you don't get to you go know, home anymore. Yeah, you don't get to go home from this. So he's just, he's trying to give him that last ounce of dignity as he, as his friend goes out trying to look like a cultured good dude. Mm -hmm. Really like, yeah, who has, who doesn't want their last words to be like quoting poetry and like looking that suave. And... I just, it was a really good human moment. Yeah. I really liked it a lot. It just showed their friendship and it showed and then Starkey goes to leave and uh, he goes down and this is where he just, you really like realize like, oh, he's still on the military base. 
Yeah. And he goes right down and he just goes right down into this entire into base the, that into he's the been. underground lab where all of this was done, where he's been watching all of the things and you know, the he's he's been looking at all of this through the monitors for the, the days. I mean, because we're still only days into this. Mm-hmm. And, and it's horrifying. The way that it's described is it's really well done. And the way that the character takes such a slow, leisurely pace through it. Really very methodical. He's really taking in what he's done. Then mm-hmm. he I think he really like I've I've really messed up. Right. Even though, you know, he's not he's not the scientist. He's not but he was in charge of it. Then like we were talking about, we get to the part with uh the soup. Yeah, and you know, I think that it's important that you read that this is private Frank D. Bruce. Mm-hmm. This is not somebody who was in charge. This is not somebody who was necessarily important to the project. This is somebody who was door or he was a guard or he was he was a private. He was not somebody who was important. It makes me feel like Starkey didn't know his name before he died. And so at the end of his life, when he's sitting there cleaning him up, he says his name over and over and over again to humanize him, to give him a person, to make him be a real person, not just... He's not just a random soldier that was a casualty in the war or a casualty in an experiment. He was a man that Starkey killed because of that 42nd time. Right, because of that. Well, and because of his his hubris. I mean. Yeah. And then Starkey shoots himself and sits down next to it. And we just have this one little thing with Crichton talking about how he wishes that he would have gotten the soup out of Frank D. Bruce's eyebrows. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, like I was talking about, it's just about passing the will. It's the the passing of the anxiety, mm-hmm. and it's a really good way of showing that passing of the torch. Well, and I and I feel like it's important that you know when when Lynn kills himself, he he makes this. Steve makes this really. The, it the when the shot came, it was muffled and undramatic. So now we get into chapter twenty three, and we were talking about this earlier. Randall Flag is introduced, yeah. and. It's, he's introduced in such an interesting way. And I think one of the coolest little quirks of a character I've ever read before that he just has his pockets full of pamphlets and he hands you random pamphlets. Like, that's such an interesting character quirk. And I hope that when we watch the CBS series, like, that's we see a lot of him just pulling pamphlets out of his Alexander Skarsgård, pulling pamphlets out of his pocket mm. and handing them to people. Um, I love the way that he's described as just like a redneck hillbilly, like, motorcycle dude. Um, and you can tell that, like, Stephen King goes to a real, really, really good points to tell you that he's not a good person. He's cool and he's awesome, but he's not a good person. Right. Well, and and he's, I don't know if we actually He's supernaturally, that. like, evil. He makes women that he sleeps with feel cold inside, which is, like, a weird thing to tell people. Like, a, the... the this whole chapter is framed in a way that it's just him walking down the road mm-hmm. thinking about himself. And yes. he's, so the fact that he's just thinking about sitting there thinking, when I sleep with women, they get cold inside. Right. It's like, why are you thinking about this? Are you okay? But no, <laughs> he does not seem to be okay. And we find out that he has a lot of different monikers. The Walking Man, Richard Fry, the Dark Man, Robert Frank. And everywhere he's gone, he's pretty much... Con- killed people, uh, convinced other people to kill people, created the riot. 
he met Oswald and took Oswald's pamphlet at one point. Uh, the man that is supposedly killed JFK. He's got all of these small little connections to these large things that have happened. Right. And they're all around the 60s, it seems to be, is this character. So Yeah, I mean, he just um, – I think that this section is important to establish that he was not ever the face of those things, but he was always nearby – and and implies that he was like um, an instigator. He is. He's that small little stands in the corner and tells you like, wouldn't it be better if this happened? Yeah, he's he's the devil on your shoulder. Yep, quite literally. Mm-hmm. And he's just walking everywhere. And it's really interesting how this is. It's just him lost in his own thoughts, walking and walking and walking. And then all of a sudden he just stops and he says, something's coming. And so it's almost that disturbance in the force like that magical aura moment and he starts talking about how he's going to re- be reborn uh he could taste it the sooty hot taste that came from everywhere as if god was planning a cookout and all of civilization was going to be the barbecue so it makes me think the time of revelation is coming all oh, these ion like and then we go i think the next chapter is the lloyd chapter right yeah yeah so i think that he just goes so supernatural in this chapter and then he immediately goes humany, humany, humany with mm-hmm. like now this man's on trial for murder, right? And it's right. just the way he juxtaposes these and jumps back and forth is really interesting. And essentially, he says uh, we're going to change. And then this last couple of things is he concentrated, smiled. The dusty, rundown heels of his boots began to rise off the road an inch, two, three inches. The smile broadened into a grin. Now he was a foot up, and. It just ends with him floating and then coming back down and going, not yet, but soon. Mm-hmm. And okay, I'm yeah, interested. Right. Let's see what he's doing. And like the way that it introduces, he, he's almost introduced as an anti-hero. Like he has vested interests in both sides of things. He will simultaneously go and destroy a pipeline while he will also go and sit on that pipeline's uh board of committee board of members and like Mm -hmm. try and make them more money by like hurting more people um so it's interesting to see like is he being set up to like have to be a better person and help or is he being set up to be born as the antichrist through franny which is the real solution that i'm pretty sure of um and then we get into lloyd and this is a good chapter it's interesting uh but I don't feel like it adds anything to the overall story again. Not yet. I feel like Lloyd himself will eventually to, be in the story. But we have to understand Lloyd's, Lloyd's plight from. in order to understand Lloyd's significance this later. Is gonna, so, I feel like this proves a little bit more of like the theory of like when the virus starts to affect their life, that's when they get pulled into the main story a little bit more. Yeah. And like Lloyd's story feels really segmented right now because he's not affected by the virus it even says in this part where he says your case has pushed everything that has to do with the virus onto page two nobody cares about that because they're more concerned because they're more concerned about you because you know you're a murderer multi multi multi-state murderer and yeah i mean he gets threatened by the the guard and as soon as he gets in with his lawyer he's like man this guard was like threatening me and um so (laughs) you know the lawyer's good. The lawyer is good. He's he, really fun and clever, and he also like and and he was hardly old enough to be shaving yet, yeah. like Judge. But what the hell? Beggars couldn't be choosers, you know. I mean, he just he's got this kid who is 
clever and on his Tenacious. side. Yes. I, I feel like on his side because I mean that's how you make because money. That's well, because that's his job. Yeah, exactly. But um I think one of the things that I thought was really funny and interesting is like you said, the guard at the beginning, he threatens him uh to knock out one of his teeth. Mm-hmm. And he comes back in and he tells the lawyer and he's like, That guy said he's gonna knock out one of my teeth. And the lawyer's like, All right, I'll count your teeth before you leave. And I was just like, huh, that's funny. So then at the end of the chapter, he's done with his lawyer and he's just hanging out in the yard. And this guy comes over and he's and he's like, Hey man, what's going on? And he's like, Oh, I'm good, how are you? And then he just kicks him in the ball so hard he bat- passes out. Right. And, and the, he just and the passes guard out. that threatened to is just like flipping him the bird <laughs> yeah. across the yard, yep. and I'm like, "All right, this is a, it's a good little comedy moment." And also, like after everything you saw Lloyd do in that first chapter, you want to see him beat up and I mean, like put yeah, down a little bit. He's, he's obviously not a good human. <laughs> if we want, if Steve expects me to care about this character and expects me to care about him changing, we got to beat him up a little bit. We got to put him down. We got to show him that, like, we got to really truly show him that, like, his actions were bad. Right. Um. But yeah. But so. What this is, and he doesn't actually end up in court, but what his attorney, Devins, tells him is, like, this is how it's going to go down. You know, because of all of these things, you are on the fast track to the electric chair. They're not going to play around with you. It's going to be a short road, and this is how it's going to be, and it's just a tough old world, and that's it. So this is what you have to do to make sure that you can at least get life instead of the electric chair. Right. And that's the big thing is he just, he, Devins is trying to get him out of the death penalty. Right. You know, he knows he's not going to be, be able to keep him out of prison, but he's just trying to keep him from the death right. penalty. Um, and we end the chapter with, uh, it's just these, the way that Stephen King will have these last little like images that he ends a chapter with, and then he'll connect it into the next one because mm-hmm. he ends this chapter by saying it's a tough old world, Lloyd. It's a tough old world, and then later on in this chapter about Nick, he uh, also says uh, Nick to himself says, "Wow, it's a tough world. It's a tough old world." Mm-hmm. And so just those fun little parallels that are happening. Um, and man, this is this is a rough chapter for Nick. Yeah, like we were talking about, it's him just going back and forth between uh, Jane Baker and the the truck stop and And the jail. jail. He's got his three prisoners, Vince, Billy, and Mike. Vince is sick right now and he's not doing well. Jane is sick right now and she's doing not well. Um, So the chapter starts with us at Jane's house and pretty much we find out that she's in the She's in the delirium stage. Mm-hmm. She's not going to make it much longer. Um, and so then he comes back to the jail and we find out that Vince has died. So he decides to take Vince's body and he puts it in the cellar. And then he goes to the truck stop, which is closed down completely. And he breaks in and he makes them some food and he brings them dinner. And then he comes back to Jane and... <sighs> And she has uh, a moment of clarity. Yeah. I don't think, I think that's when she comes back is when she has that moment of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And he comes back and she's like, I have this white dress. And it was when I wore it on my honeymoon. Can you make Mm -hmm. sure I'm buried in that dress next to my husband? And this is where like Nick just broke my heart when he's thinking about how he wishes he could say it's going to be okay. Or like Mm -hmm. your fever seems to be breaking just something to comfort this woman. And he goes back to the jail after her dying and the Vince died. Uh, Vince has died, but now Billy has cat 
caught the disease. Right. Oh, no. When he got back, Billy was dead. And Mike was sick. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah, because yeah, Billy's cause neck is all black. Earlier. And it's just showing uh, in this one, it was really showing us like, yeah, some people can take days to die and some people can die in hours. Right. Again. And so essentially Nick's sitting there and he's not sure what to do. And Mike convinces him like, I'm not going to do anything. Like, you, you got to let me out of here. Right. Um, and he decides not to. And then he goes to find uh, Dr. Soames, to try and find Dr. Soames. So he's going everywhere and he can't find anyone. And he goes out to his last thought. And I was like, wow, I didn't even think of this. He's like, I'm going to go to the soldiers that were tearing up that road. Mm -hmm. So he goes to try and get to the soldiers and the road's all completely destroyed and tore up. And he gets off his bike to go and look. And then he just finds piles of dead bodies that have been hidden from everyone. And he screams and runs away. Um, And he goes back to the jail. And Mike's just – he's at the point of hysterics now, just two down, one to go. Like, you've killed two of us now. You're getting right. your revenge. And and so he, he – Let's him out. Yeah, he tosses Mike's the keys – Mike the keys, and then he's out, man. He's done – He's done what all he can do. He, I mean, quite literally, there's nothing else that this poor kid could do. And he, I'm glad that he has that little bit of closure. Because yeah. it says uh, Nick watched him, his heart felt lighter, and he was suddenly sure that he had done the right thing. Yeah, and he did do the right thing. Like he thought he was, he thought it was just regular sickness. You know, like you don't think mm-hmm. it's the end of the world. Like and right. Yeah, of course you're not just going to let criminals out like that if you aren't, especially, especially ones especially that hurt you personally. That, right. The, mm. the reason that they're there is because they whooped you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, he goes back to take care of Jane, um, you know, and she's super sick and he knows it. And so he turns on the TV and. Uh, oh, no, no, no. This is Jane's already dead. He goes to. Yeah. Uh, um. Oh no, she's not. She's not dead. Because he goes he and he makes the burgers. Yep. Um, and then he goes back to James. You're right. Okay, yep. cool. Sorry. I was reading a different page. Um, he thought the entire town. And like as he's walking through town, like everything's just shut down, canceled, nobody's right. home. He can't find anyone. Um, and we find out uh later, earlier on too, that Nick just kind of assumes that everyone had taken the path through the fields. Mm-hmm. Like Soames had talked about in that last chapter. Right. He had just they'd all figured out their way to escape. And he gets back, and Jane essentially just says, thank you for everything. Like, I never wanted to die alone. Um, And she just starts telling all these stories about John. And hmm, it got real good. And then I, yeah. yeah. It's just so tragic. I I mean, and I feel like this is really her humanity. It's so important. And... I think in an it's, ideal it's world, it's important for for us to see that Nick did everything he could. I think in an ideal world, Nick kind of thought he found a home. Yeah, and it evaporated in the literally hours. Yes, yeah, you know, because they took him in and and treated him great, better than anyone ever better has. than anyone had in a long time. And yes, I mean, it just it this is really tragic for Nick. Um, and it's really tragic, period. But specifically for Nick because now he's lost this these people who like actually listened to him and tried to help him mm-hmm. and I really like this phrase um that she says while she's like slipping in and out um he was we were in love very much in love love is what moves the world i've always thought it is the only thing which allows men and women to stand in a world where gravity always seems to want to pull them down bring them low 
and make them crawl. We were so much in love. Mm -hmm. I loved that a lot. It was Mm -hmm. really nice. Um, And also just this whole chapter like really broke my heart because later, like literally paragraphs later, we find out that Nick can't really cry because he's mute and all he can kind of do is just tear up and have like a slow leak as he puts it. Yeah. So he can never really have like that true cathartic like sob that the rest of us can experience. Because he's, he's mute because of a birth defect. Yeah. And it's just like that is even more heart wrenching because I know how many times I've just laid down in my bed and cried to the heavens and eventually felt better. So I can only imagine like never being able to do that is right. Oof. All right, and so now we get into chapter 26, which is amazing. Uh, It's really good. There's a little, like I said, this is the one where it was like, uh, it shows a little bit of societal racism in it, just in the way that we talk about people. But I do think that, like, well, he grows past that, I'm hopeful. Um, And I'm excited to find that. This opening part is just so, like inspired by something in Steven's college career, it feels like to me. Well, and and it also establishes a time frame. When Franny talked to um um what's his name? Why is this Harold? No, the her boyfriend. Oh Jess. Jess, thank you. Um I wanted to say Jason. I knew that wasn't right. Anyway, but when she talked to him, it was the 17th of June. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then this says specifically on the, on 20th. the night of the 25th to 26th. So it's been. So it's been. Oof. Eight week. days. Yeah. It's been a week. That is. Yeah. Okay. That's a good thing to bring up. Yeah. yeah. And we know at the beginning of book one, it says that uh, Captain Tripp's book one is going to last until July 4th. Right. So we have a couple. Almost a, like half a like month we have still. From the 16th to the, the 4th oh, of July. Like, 16th yeah, of June to like the 4th of July. 10 days maybe? And that's um, um, 14, 15, 16, 18 days. 18 days. I don't know how to do math. And, <laughs> um, so that is a really good point. That's how far and what how much stuff has happened in a week, yes. in eight days. Yeah. Um, so... I don't know. You know attention, just... attention, attention. Superflu. There is no superflu vaccine. It is a serious disease. It is not a serious disease. It is a deadly disease. <clears throat> Susceptibility may run as high as 75%. You know, this is at, at the University of Kentucky at the Louisville campus. Um, you know, somebody got this figured out real quick and is trying to spread something that is at least resembling accurate information well it's just interesting too because unless like there's some secret underground network of reporters that's like going to exist in this novel all of a sudden it's obviously just regular people figuring out that this is not right right because something somebody figured out in sipe sings sipe springs and they had to go kill them somebody was about to figure it out uh in uh dr Soames was about to figure it out and like they quarantined that town like Anything that they can do, like all of these things to make sure. Uh, and still, some people are figuring it out and they're getting that information out there. It's interesting just to show the tenacity of like the human being trying to like provide for other people. Yeah. Um, then we get into, and it's really, this is very segmented. It's all written just in third person, like this happened over here, this happened here, and then this happened. Um, and it's this is what made me really think that it was written to like emulate a movie. 
because it reminds me of just like a camera zooming in on a thing, showing it, and then going to another part of the world and right. zooming in and zooming out. Yeah. And, um, I thought this was the most interesting one. Basically, they, we find out that all of the news has been pretty much told what to say directly from a script by these government officials. And they're in the boardroom with them all of the time. So a group of men, six of them were already six, too. So they figured they had nothing to lose. Uh, bring in a bunch of guns and they take over the news station and they show clips of what's actually happening. Right. They they broadcast the actual news. News. And it this one of the like there's a couple of parts in this where my partner and I were talking and she was like, I want to read along with you, but it's kind of like I don't want to read horror novels. And I was like, Darby, like I get that, but this one doesn't seem to be that scary. It's and starting then, to change. Right. Like, especially like that. There was one thing we just, we skipped over it a little bit, but I want to go back and like read it because it, the, now that I'm thinking about it, it scared me. Like it was good. Um, it's in chapter 23, 22, where with Starkey going back down into the thing and he's down in there and he says, Starkey put his fingers under the man's chin and pushed his head back. As he did so, the man's eyeballs fell back into his head with a meaty little thud. Yep, that was awesome. It was so good. And I was like, oh, man, it's starting to get a little spooky. And then we get into this chapter where, essentially, he describes in good detail, like solid detail, just a dump truck backing up to the water and a barge lifting up its truck and then just watching a waterfall of old women and men and babies and children just fall down into this barge. And then men in hazmat suits with pitchforks just pushing them down onto the barge. The world is not going to be okay. No, the that world is, is not going to be okay. We're well past refrigerated morgue trucks in the park. And so for two hours, they just keep broadcasting these clips and similar things. They broadcast hospitals and all these things. And then at 11.16... The they're, they're putting the truth out This is there. what's happening in your world right now. Right. And this is... We talked about this a little bit, but this is where it really hit me. Because the other day, we had that big... We had... A protest that turned violent, an insurrection, revolution, terrorism. I don't know. Right. Like, yeah, I don't want right. to. Something went badly in the American capital. And I didn't watch any news sources on it. I didn't watch Fox or CBS or AP or USA or anything. I, when I want news that is accurate and true, I will go to Twitter and I will watch videos of people that are there in those moments. Mm -hmm. So all I did that day was I watched videos of people that were pretty much breaking into the Capitol and doing those things. And I saw like from those point of views without that bias. And then I started reading this and realized that is impossible in this age. Yes. There's no Twitter videos. There's no Snapchat. There's no way for you to just take a quick little video and send it to your friend. The only thing that you can see is the things that are sent on the radio or on the only things that you can see are the things that are sent on the TV, and the only things you can hear was what's on the radio. Right, right. There is no... So, so this is so very important that these people are putting, putting the truth, the truth, out, truth there. out there because, every, like we talked about in the last episode, information was not as easy to come by in 1990 I mean, as it is Journalism in seemed to have a lot more integrity back then, too. Yeah, Back then, absolutely. 40 years ago. 30 years ago. Well, yeah, this yeah. is in the 90s, isn't yeah. it? But I guess it's written from the point of view where, like, he hoped that journalism would be this integral. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting 
because I was just really thinking about like how this is more possible because of that lack of information mm-hmm. flow. Like if you tried to set this in 2020 with Twitter and everything, like the government covering it up would only last like 35 pages because then, you know, yeah. 13 people would have a Twitter video of the government covering it up. Yes. So it's not going to do as well. Yeah. Um, then we go into, this is the one I was talking about earlier, James D. Hogless. This essentially shows us that there's, I really like that it shows us just that there are some writers that just care about giving information out there. In nine paragraphs. In nine paragraphs, he introduces a character, gives me a reason to care about him, shows me what that character is going to do, and then gives me a sense of accomplishment after that character accomplishes it, and then sets him off in a peaceful way that I'm content with it. And this, this nine paragraphs encapsulates why his short stories are so good. Yeah, definitely. It's really like how you broil down a story, story structure into its most important elements. Mm-hmm. So we meet a man named James D. Hoglis. He has a newspaper, uh, and it's him. He just writes it and produces it and publishes it all by himself. And it's gotten a lot of following because there's no government influence on it. So he puts out an extra one that's talking about government forces trying to conceal the plague outbreak. It seems like everyone in his town is dead. But he's going but door he's to door. Do ju- he's going to put this out there to just make sure. in case. So he goes door to door and he puts it on every single doorstep in his town. He gets out to the edge on this big hill and he just doesn't have the energy anymore to like do anything else. So because he, he's sick the whole he's, time. He's sick the whole time. He's about right. to die. And he cuts the uh, – he has 25 of them in his trunk. He cuts the little thing and he just throws them up in the air and he says, hopefully someone will read it. And then he sits in his car and falls asleep and dies. Yeah. And it's just like – Really powerful last moments this mm-hmm. to show how important it is that people get that information mm-hmm. because everyone will die if they don't get that information. And uh, like Jane D. Hoglis knows that. Right. right. Um, then we get into the New York Times or the LA Times where it shows that it's not just little small town papers that care. Right. R- news reporters in large cities care too. And the LA Times, which is under guarded gunfire like guarded gunfire they have soldiers under armed guard armed thank you <laughs> yeah. they're under armed guard they secretly plan and publish 10,000 copies or 26,000 copies of their uh oh no 10,000 copies got out yeah, they printed 26, but only 10,000 copies. 10, copies got out because they got caught. And it's essentially a, uh, if this is what's happening and you're really saying that this is just a, you know, it's a disease that isn't that deadly. It's actually just the flu and you need to, we all need to calm down. Uh, why is this list of like all of these things not true? Right. Like why answer these things, president? And then we get the... Uh, Man in Duluth with the khaki shorts and his sandwich board, like I had read mm-hmm. earlier. This one, like I was saying, the disappearance, the time of the disappearance is here. Yeah, time of the disappearance is here. Lots of people are going to be leaving the earth. Christ the Lord returneth soon. Somebody's pregnant. That's very important. Seems to be prepare to meet your God. Also, though, Whoopi Goldberg's 108, and I know she's going to end up being very important. She could be the <laughs> God too. The back read, "Behold, the hearts of the sinners were broken." So, may, ooh, Larry, all of them probably, if I go back and look at it, they all represent a sin, and they've all had their hearts broken now because they've had people in their lives that they've lost, except for Stu. So maybe Stu is the Christ the Lord returneth soon. Ooh, okay. <laughs> and the sinners, because Franny's got her heart broken, Larry's heart is broken. Larry's definitely uh, lust. And I mean, mm. Franny could be gluttony. 
Uh, she's always talking about how she wants to go and eat French fries and she wants to go to the Dairy Queen and she's eating a strawberry pie. And I think, oh, I think Franny is huh. less than I think that. I mean, she could be less. I don't think pregnancy indicates that. Like, that could just be a one time. Like, she had right. sex but, one time on accident you know, and she got preggers. But also, she could be doing them all the time. Like, I don't know we don't her know. well enough. We don't know. I just know Larry is. But, anyways. Maybe. The great shall be abased, and the abased made great. So uh, the Starkies, the presidents, they will fall. Mm-hmm. And the abased made great. The uh, the generals that try to take over North California, the Stews, the, the Frannies, the Lloyds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evil days are at hand. That's obvious. I mean, duh. <laughs> uh, woe to thee, O Zion. I feel like if I knew what the word Zion meant, like spiritually and in a religious context, I'd be able to decipher that more. We go into this part, which I really liked a lot. Uh, it's about this guy named Ray Flowers who has his own uh, radio television, radio uh, call in show. show mm-hmm. And he does it all by himself this day. And he's taking in calls. And in the first, the first hour, it's a doctor saying that people are dying like flies and that there's no vaccine. And it's a woman like saying that she saw a truckload of bodies being buried in a hill somewhere. And then just as casually as can be, we just get this little bit that gets cut in. There's army unit in Carthage, 50 miles away. 20 people were dispatched to go kill that one uh, radio jockey. Right. And so two of them are like, no, and they get shot on the spot. And then we immediately go right back into Ray flowers. It's just so casually thrown in there because that's pretty much like, it's just what the sergeant at that moment mm-hmm. is just like, yep, we got to go take care go of this now. Right. So he's sitting there and then Ray's, <laughs> Ray's awesome. And he's sitting there pounding, they're pounding on the door and he's just like, ladies and gentlemen, it does appear that I am being, my room is being broken into right now. And he's like, I'll never give up, blah, 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 blah. And then the sergeant says, open fire. And they're still live on air and he, mm-hmm. they shoot them all up and then Ray's down. And then the sergeant's like, all right, guys, we need to make sure this is getting done. And then all of his privates turn and shoot the sergeant. And then they're like, yay, we did it. We killed the sergeant. (laughs) And then we don't know what happens after that. So I think that these characters are probably going to end up being like little side characters that we see come in at some point, like, and have like a nominal consequence that we never would have expected just because they're also brought up a couple more times Mm -hmm. about how like a sergeant was killed by his own. Yeah. Um, I really like... Yeah, this one's really interesting. I thought well, too. Well, and and this at the top of, of page two twenty one here. This is really important. Mark this. The you, rumor. You want to remember this in Boulder, Colorado, a rumor that the U.S. Met- met- meteorological the U.S. meteorological air testing center was really a biological warfare installation began to spread. The rumor was replaced was repeated. On the air by a semi-delirious Denver FM DJ. Oh, I wonder who did that, Mr. Randall Flagg. Hmm. Hmm. I'm definitely like, yeah, that's Randall Flagg. I'm saying it now. Okay. There's also like, because later on it says Randall Flagg was coming back from an Ecotage event. And then it says in when Nick's watching the news, he says, and an oil pipeline has just blown up in uh, Wyoming or Laramie, Wyoming. And then we know that that's where he's coming. So he's definitely walking south because I know that Laramie, Wyoming is near Fort Collins, Colorado because of the Laramie Project. Right. Also because of geography. <laughs> so we know that this is – okay, that was a good – oh, it, that's it good. Just, that's just important. I want you no, to No, it's interesting too. And it's very like – hmm, why? And it is like 
just so thrown away too. And I know that that's it Stephen is. King style uh-huh. is just to be like, here's some really information that's just thrown away until 40 pages later when you go, <gasps> Oh yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that now. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say about these communiques is I just like the style that they're written in. There's nothing in them that's particularly like good or like need to know or like anything. It's just interesting that he includes them in the style that they are written. And it also just tells us that there's people from New York to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, everywhere. Oh, it literally just hit me that these are both from places that the characters are in. The Landon, mm-hmm. Zone 2, New York, that's where Larry is. Yep. Gara, Zone 6, Little Rock is in Arkansas, where mm-hmm. near where Nick is. Yep. Didn't even, hmm. Um, so then we get those little communiques. And then uh, this is, I'm really excited to see how they do this part in the miniseries. And if they act it all out and it's not just a teleplay, I'm going to be so disappointed because it, if it's not just a screen with like uh, just some like lines going up and down and I hear some cops explaining this scenario, I feel like you're going to miss the whole point of what Stephen King was going for with this. Yeah. And what I'm afraid of is because, you know, it is almost 1200 pages of material and it's only, you know, 16 hours of uh, miniseries. I'm afraid that some of these things are just going to be skipped over because somebody somewhere doesn't feel like it's important to the story. And that's why I feel like every book that is being made into uh, any kind of other media needs to have a book slapper on staff that says, nope, this is important to the rest of the story. You can't skip this. Or not even like <laughs> it, it's, it explains part of the story yes. or it helps with part yes, of the story. It, and, you know, you can't, you, you don't have to focus on it, but you do have to have something there that talks about this because you're going to need that later in the and story. And I think that like this part in particular, you just don't want to like just explain an entire 200 person group of college students just being gunned down like that. Right. Like that sounds like a terrible scene to have to experience. Are you going to write it from the point of view of one of those college students who was getting murdered? Are you going to write it from the point of view of like one of the army dudes that's being told to murder all these Mm -hmm. college students? Like regardless. And so the way that he decides to do it as a regular old security guard for this campus that just happens to be sitting there and he's like, uh, base looks like something really weird is about to go down. Is brilliant. I love yeah. it. And I, it's such a good way to almost desensitize us from this, to bring us, to make it's a step away. It just it disconnects us from it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, we need to know that it happened, but it gives us a. It doesn't a, need to scar me. Right. Yeah. It, it gives us a, a level of removal from it. Yeah. But so that, you know, yeah, that's horrible. They do that. Um, yeah, and then at the end of it, you yeah. just hear mortar rounds exploding. Yeah. So uh, that didn't go well. Well, and and it's so awful. It's just awful. And then we get to... Uh, you know, they say it's out of control, everything. Yes. LA is going up in flames, the whole city and everything around it. And this is uh, one of... Uh, the general's reporting to Crichton now and Crichton just straight up says, don't worry about it. Nobody's listening. It doesn't matter anymore. Like what's right. going on. Right. And, uh, Crichton's about to get fired too. It seems that's I for mean, sure. And well, I mean, I think that Crichton is a realist. I mean, he's a realist. Mm-hmm. He knows that there's just not anything else they can do. They've yeah. done what they can do and it's, it's just out and that's it. And that's what it is. So, um, and it's a quick little chapter about that. 
And then we get this fun little chapter of pretty much people. It shows us that like there's a struggle for power right now. Like some people are yeah. going to try and take over California, and then the U.S. government's going to come in and kill them, and then somebody's going to come in and kill them, and it's just going to be a big circle of tr- who's going to grasp for power right now. And we find out that truly, Starkey did release the disease in uh, Russia and China. Mm-hmm. That is what he meant by the iron and bamboo ca- curtain, yeah. which I mean, in the 70s and 90s, everyone knew that that's what that meant. Yeah. And so. The government, and specifically the president, are using that as a way to say, we didn't do anything wrong. Right. Look, it's in this Russia. It's in China. There's no way it could have been us. Right. Uh, and then the very last phrase, the very last one is good, I think, mm-hmm. too. It's just like, this is like the average, like, this is what you would be doing in this situation, sadly. Like, not you specifically, right, like but- the royal you. Graffito written on the front Baptist Church of Atlanta in the red spray paint. Dear Jesus, I will see you soon. Your friend, America. P.S. I hope you still have some vacancies by the end of the week. Chapter 27. This is the chapter where I really felt like, yeah, you do need some edits, Steve. Uh, And this is the first time I truly have felt like that. Like a little bit of Franny stuff and a little bit of early Larry stuff. But a lot of this stuff is useless information, I feel. Um, the monster shouter, that's important. All yes. the stuff that's happening in New York, important. Literally anything that happened in New York with Yvonne and the money and all of this stuff, it's like, I get that you're sad about that, but there's other stuff going on right now. And I do think that it's interesting that Larry – one of the things that I think – one of the reasons why I attribute Larry to being Stephen King is because as a person that is an artist, I know that my feelings can – cover everything else up in the world mm-hmm. like what i feel can be more important than literally anything else right and i can only imagine that a man that is able to write this and like to do these creative works has to feel similarly so i could see him being the type of person that when he met tabitha his entire life changed the the yeah. world the moon everything it was just a different like being it was a different world it was a different thing and i think that that's what we see in larry the yeah. moment he meets another woman that shows any kind of interest in him, the world changes. It's it's love, blinded sight. Like everything bad is good now because I met this because woman I met this and woman. I have love in my life again. And I think that that's – I relate really hard to Larry and Steve about that. Like mm-hmm. I get that. And it's just something that when you have that support and love that you can go forward through it. And I think also it just kind of shows that a lot of times those type of personalities don't have a parental figure. And I think – we know that Larry didn't have a father growing up and his right. mother worked all the time. He didn't have that I love you support at home. Right. And so, of course, he's looking forward to other relationships. Yeah, Steve also didn't have a dad growing up. So, like I said, I, I, I get this. I, right. I really feel Larry is a good illusion for Steve putting himself into this. Right. Well, and I mean, this this chapter is where you find out that Larry is – he wants to be a good person, but something there's just a slight disconnect. You know, um, he knows that he's that he, you know, he, he knew, doesn't want to be a good person. He wants to put up the front so people think he's a good well, person, but, but he wants to do what he wants to do. Right. And that's the problem is that what he wants to do isn't be a good person. Like when his friend says, you owe me twenty five dollars. He says, no, I already paid you back. But right. then he goes to the pretenses of taking the money and throwing it at him right. after he's left. Right. So he puts up the motion to his friend, like, if it's that important to you, here's the money. Right. But he only did it after his friend was left. So there's no risk in him losing that money. Right. So he goes and gets it. But, you know, I mean, 
and he knows he's a he knows he's a shit. He knows he he's knows not a good person. He I think, and that's not the saddest part you about know, it. And but I do think one saving grace. I don't think he grace, wants to be that way. Yep. he's just that's how he is. Yeah, and I think though the difference between him and an actual bad person is that a bad person can't acknowledge those things about themselves. Mm-hmm. They can't recognize those things about themselves and they don't care about those things. Right. And we've talked about this. Yeah. You know, a bad person doesn't care that they're bad. They're just bad. Mm-hmm. You know, a, 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 good, flag. a good person who does bad things is trying knows and, and regrets doing those bad things, you know, is going to try to not do those things again. They're going to grow. They're going to grow. Gonna they're going to learn from that thing and grow. Is you a know, good Human being doesn't ever stop growing and learning. Right. And, you know, while I know that not everything in this chapter is essential, you know, I think that it's um, it's important to show, you know, that it's not just the humans. You yeah. Know, the monkey and the lion and the – There's you know, another the scene. zoo in Central Park. Yeah. And so – There was another scene that we slightly skipped over where it shows the dogs trying to attack Nick. Um, because he has the hamburgers oh, yeah, and he yeah. has to like shoot the pistol to get them right. off fully and stuff. So it is showing that there it is. Like I said, we're getting into a wasteland. This yes. is not just like easy society anymore. Like you're going to have to like, there's going to be dangers and stuff. Yeah. Things Stu, aren't just normal now. Yeah. You're going to, there's, you know, the monster shouter and what's he going to do? And, and then this is where Larry meets Rita and, that's why I brought up the whole – the idea of him being so encumbered by love. Right. Well, because- and I think that Rita also – he's like, oh, here, this is an opportunity for me to be a good guy because I can take care I of this I can take person. care of this person. Right. And so, you and, know. Yeah. It's one of those things where if he can put all of his thoughts into helping Rita be better, mm-hmm. then he can – not be as bad himself. Right. And Rita seems really interesting. She seems, she's high as all God knows. She's popping pills every 30 seconds. So it's like, she's not, she's here for a good time, not the rest of time. Right. And she is, uh, well, and, and, and she lies about it. Oh yeah. She's like, this is just vitamin Vitamin E. E. And it's like, no girl, like the way you're talking, it's like, (laughs) you are stoned. And it also like, I'm sure Stephen King might've met an older woman that like, Introduced him to drugs for the first time. I mean, I don't know. One of those kind of things. I don't know any of these. This is all speculation. Steve, I love you. You're a wonderful man. And I hope to one day meet you and tell you all these things. That would be amazing. Um, All right. Chapter 28, we get into Fran. The first big thing that you find out is that she's disassociating to the point where she, like, blacks out for a half hour at a time. Right. And she doesn't remember what's happening. Right. I mean, she is not in a good place mentally, emotionally. I mean, her parents are dead. You know, she's just, I mean, she's in this horrible grief and she, you know, she's everybody, pregnant. She's, she's having she's these pregnant, hunger pains she's having now. She's hunger pains. She's, you know, trying to take care of herself, but her parents are dead and everybody in town is dead and she hasn't seen anybody else alive in a while. And it's interesting because this line of scripture is just on her mind before removing the moat in thy, thy neighbor's eye, attend the beam in thy own. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a scripture line about envy, right? Um, it's about judging your neighbors. Yeah, it's you know, you know, you gotta like, take care of your own business before you worry about theirs. And I think that it's in now that like I'm rereading that after having read this chapter, it's obviously in relating to Harold. Mm-hmm. It's like don't judge well, him until you like take care of yourself. But she doesn't even know he's alive yet. Yeah, she hasn't even seen. I just him meant yet. like for the reader. 
Right. Like, that's the, like, foreshadowing, like, going into, like, this is why, like, this is where she's going to be coming from. And then she eventually puts it into motion there, too, which is nice. But essentially, we just get her telling us about how her dad had died. Mm-hmm. And then we learn uh, she was watching the program of uh, all of the black people murdering the white people. Uh, and the way that she talks about it is just, like, I can imagine seeing that on TV and just be like, there's no way this is real. Right. Like, they, this can't Man, be this is, real. I can't believe they're showing this, you know, fictional thing on real TV. And I just, they shouldn't be showing this on I TV. really loved how in the that section, though, that's where he says, uh, then the camera fell, the cameraman fell over, giving them the pan shot of hell. Mm-hmm. And then in this section, it describes what the camera angle looked like from uh-huh. the TV. And I was like, that is brilliant. That yeah. was really cool. And uh, then we get into the town hall where we find out that uh, Ogon Quick has decided to essentially barricade themselves. They're going to close off the city. No one's allowed in anymore. And if you want to leave, you can. Like, they don't care, but they're not letting anyone else in. And they decide that they're going to shoot anyone that tries to come in. And we find out that they've murdered a couple of people and that this has been happening now for a couple of days. And Franny has the realization that she's going to have to do something with her dad's body. Yeah. Who's going to take care of my dad? I'm the only one to take care of my dad. I got to get it together. And then this this is where we meet Harold. Harold's gross. He's a 16-year-old boy, and uh, Franny's hot, and that's the point of this scene, grossly, is just to, like, show, like, their base relationship, like, where they come from. Franny's a little disgusted by him. He's a little disgusting, but he's also... The only other human that's still alive, as far as she knows. I think that he also... Obviously, he's alone now. Mm-hmm. Like his entire family's dead. He's got to be someone that's immune to it a little bit, it seems. Or I mean, he could be sick and just point, yeah. Right. Like at this point, we don't know that. But there's got to be something. Right, right. And I'm sure at this point, he just wanted someone to like talk to and to be a friend. He was tired of being alone too, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, she knows who he is. He knows who she is because she's she was his sister's best friend. And so, and has been for a long time. So, you know, he was the annoying, gross little brother. And so she has a preconceived notion of who who he he is. And, and it doesn't, and it gets to the point where, and he's kind of an arrogant ass too. Until she puts him in his place. Yeah. And then, you know, I think that that's the thing too, is it's, they're both, they're trying to have their relationship be normal like it used to be. Mm-hmm. She's He's trying to be like the annoying little brother, like, well, don't you think that's a dumb idea? Mm-hmm. And she's just trying to be like the, you know, the quick little like, huh, it's not your idea, blah, 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 blah. But it's not going to work. And right. they realize that pretty quickly. And he's just like, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Like, can I do anything to help? Right. And it gets sincere. And she says – all right, maybe I'm being too hard on him. And she even says, like, I could get a sweater to, like, cover up and feel better, but I think that would make Harold feel worse about himself because I know he's trying to, like, do all these. And it's just, Franny's very considerate. She really, truly is. I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, this is the chapter that flipped me on Franny, like, real hard. Um, Also, like, her doing all this stuff with her dad coming up is heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And the way that Stephen King describes it is heartbreaking. And then there's the little linograph in the book as well of her just carrying her father down the stairs. It's just, ugh. Yeah. Uh, So eventually, Harold says, I'm planning on getting out of here. Do you want to come with me? And she says, where? And he says, I don't know. And she says, let me know when you have a place to go and I'll think about it. Right. And then she goes and helps Peter, and eventually she puts she Peter in the ground. She goes to have a crazy dream. And 
this this is important, I think. I mean, obviously it's important. All the dreams are important. That's why I've been reading them. In the dream, she was climbing the stairs again, going to her father to do her duty to see him decently under the ground. But when she entered the room, the tablecloth was already over the body, and her sense of grief and loss changed to something else, something like fear. It wasn't her father under there. And there was, uh, and what was under there was not dead. Something, someone filled with dark life and hideous good cheer was under there. And it would be more than her life was worth to pull that tablecloth back, but she couldn't stop her feet. Her hand reached out, floated over the tablecloth, and snatched it back. A wave of, of he was grinning, uh, and snatched it back. He was grinning, but she couldn't see his face. A wave of frigid cold blasting up at her from that awful grin. No, she couldn't see his face, but she could see the gift this terrible apparition had brought for her unborn baby. A twisted coat hanger. Yeah. I don't think the last page. She fled from the room, yeah. And then she wakes up and she just has this ethereal thought. It's him, it's him, it's the walking dude, it's him, and then falls back asleep. So she's not going to remember that. Like, that's for sure. Like, that's not going to be a thing. Or it's going like, to be one of those gonna things. It's not going to be a conscious memory, yeah. I think. Yeah. And it's just like, to me, it confirmed that Randall's going to be reborn in this baby or something similar or that the baby is being reborn as Christ and that Randall's going to be trying to take, get rid of the baby. And that's going to be his goal now. These are all interesting theories. Thanks. Um, Chapter 29 is... This really is the summary chapter. No, this is the stew chapter. Oh, it just starts yeah, off with that because right. it's... Gosh, it's I keep forgetting that. Yes. It sets off in a way chapter. so that way we know that it's not happening after Franny. It's not happening before those things. The, this is happening simultaneously yes. at that moment. And we get this long description from Stu of this guy named Elder. And Elder is just... He is the, he's the order man. He is the, this is what my orders are. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Stu, uh, final orders. And he's just knows that this man is here to kill him when it's time yeah again i'm gonna come back to Stu's not stupid dumb. at all he is a really smart in a practical way person mm-hmm. you know and he, it's it's he picks up little things he talks about how he read this book called watership down and he learned the word called farn which mm-hmm. is when an animal starts to get a little stir crazy and they can do just something a little bit more desperate than they normally would and so elder comes in and he says, how are you feeling? And he says, I got my orders about you, Stu, and they're not so hot. And Stu, the way he describes it, he's just dead, and he just knows what needs to be done. Right. He, he's, like, disassociated, and he's like, okay, let's, we have to do this. You know, it, one of us is, is going to walk out of this room. It's yep. going to be me or him. Yeah, and, and I just know. don't think the elder expects this in any way, obviously, because Stu hasn't been particularly, like, aggressive. But also, Elder is sick that we find out, too. Mm-hmm. He's got the virus. Yep. So it's probably another reason why he was forced to stay behind. And he, Stu, brilliant, just screams, there's a rat behind you. What kind of operation do you got here? And he goes to turn around, and Stu grabs the chair and just smashes it down on his arm. He drops the pistol, and it goes off on the ground. He picks up the pistol, and when you're reading it, you just immediately are like, ah, oh, no, the pistol went off. Like, people are going to start coming now. Like, and, and, like, that's Stu's man, too. And it's just immediately from that point on, the urgency is a thousandfold. Right. Like, you, this Because entire, we don't know yet that basically everybody in the facility is, is already dead. dead. And gone. And Stu 
runs out. Uh, he breaks his – oh, no. He breaks his arm. He gets that. And then he hits him one more time over the head and takes him down, down. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to leave and then Elder gets up and he shoots him. So he's dead now. Yeah. Stu is running down and he's not seeing anyone until he sees the nurse that was taking care of him, Vic. But Vic is sick at this point And he stops and he awkwardly says like – can I do something to help? Uh, he's talking and he's like, I'm like, they have a little conversation. And he says, if you're being serious, shoot me right now. I, I'm just tearing myself up on the inside. And Stu's like, I can't do that. And so it, it shows like Stu isn't trying to kill anyone unless he needs to. He right, didn't want to yeah. kill that man. He didn't want to had kill to. Elder, but he knew that it was either him or Elder that was walking out of that room. And I think it's a really important moment that we have. Stu show that mercy to the man that obviously was. Is it mercy? I mean, it is. To Stu's mind, it is. is, That's the thing. It keeps the blood off his hands. And I guess the big thing, too, is it was a man that was essentially his captor. Yeah. It was the man that was in charge of, like, keeping him captive. That's true. So maybe he doesn't really deserve it. Um, It's an elevator. And so then he gets in the elevator and uh, it doesn't work. So he decides to go to the stairs. And this is where, like, the scariest thing that's happened so far. Um, So he starts to go down. And, like, as he's running, we just really figure out how big this place is. And he's getting confused. He's getting tired. He doesn't know where anything is. He's getting so lost. And uh, he runs across this one room and it's the only room he points out it's the only thing that he makes mention of and it's radiology and there's a little handwritten sign that says closed until further notice randall mm-hmm. randall flag hmm hmm interesting uh so Stu's still running and as he finally sees that radiology is when he finally sees the exit as well uh he rounds the corner and then he sees it wait he, yeah, he he sees crashed into a door with a sign over the sign read exit. He pushed the bar, convinced it would not new, move, but it did. It opened easily and went down four steps to another door. More stairs that went down in, to the left of this landing. More stairs that led down into the thick darkness. The top half of the second door was clear glass reinforced with crisscross safety wire. Mm-hmm. So he steps into this landing and he, I think it's the first time that he looks back and then he looks down into the darkness and all of a sudden a hand pops out of the darkness and grabs his ankle and it pops up its head and it's an upside down head with blood dripping down from its face and it says come down and eat chicken with me beautiful it's so dark and screw Stu just starts screaming and kicking the head in the face and then eventually it falls, and we hear all these crashes, and s- the screams start, and then mm-hmm. Stu runs out. Yep, out into the night. And he's finally out, and he's alive, and he's just crying and saying, thank God I'm alive, and he starts right. walking down the road. And like we said, we know he's in Vermont now, so right. maybe he's so, going north or south or something. I don't know. We'll see. And then in our final and then chapter. In the final chapter, we kind of really already talked about this kind of in the summary. Set the wasteland. This yeah, is it. the wasteland. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean – yeah, we got – I mean – That's a lot. That is say. a lot. And and I feel like that, you know, I'm going to say it again. It's important to establish that the episodes from here are going to be a little bit longer so that we can get through this in eight episodes, probably, yeah. you know, nearer to an hour and a half each, just so that we can get through all of the book in eight episodes oh, yeah. and focus. We got to stay focused. Well, I think the nice thing is, too, is – this will be a little bit longer than like what I edit out, like just yeah. what we have to say versus like the pauses and like mm-hmm. editing it up and those kind of things will be nice too. I really, 
man, the setup it was hard to stop. There, the setup, it? yeah, it was. It was. That's why I read a chapter ahead because I thought I was able to. Yeah, that was rough. This this thing that he sees is so. What you know? It's yeah. It doesn't make. Is it real? Is it? I mean, is, is it, it a delusion? That is sick? Because he goes delusion? into like such it, a like effort right. to really be like. And I don't think we really get an establishment of whether or not it is somebody who is sick and on the steps, or if it is a hallucination, or if it is you know uh, a uh, an apparition, or we don't. It doesn't really clarify that. You know, and we we've established that there is some supernatural now. I mean, mm-hmm. in this segment, we have established that there's floating. a super. Yeah. So yeah, there is yeah. definitely so some magic, some, some supernatural things happening. So, you know, and and it doesn't clarify that. But at but, the end, but at the end of the day, Stu is on the outside now. He's half a country away from where he's from. He's, he's completely so out, of his out of his element. And he's, he's probably about to see corn for the first time after having all these dreams about <laughs> corn and everything. Right. I mean, he's it, it's really... Um, oh, it's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. It, it is absolutely... This is all like a nightmare. And But at least now he is in control of his own situation. Mm-hmm. He can figure it out from here, but now I am not a captive. And and he has been. He was basically kidnapped from our Oh yeah. Because they didn't give him a choice. It's not like they were like, oh like let's let's go to the hospital and see if we can figure out why you're not getting this sick. You know, they they're just here, get in this car, we're gonna do the thing. So he's been a prisoner since, you know, like the fifth chapter or whatever. Yep. Um and now he's finally the master of his own fate again. Yep. And so, so it's just a matter of what is he going to do? Yeah. What now, is all of what are all of these are, characters going to do? They're at the precipice of what to do next. Yes. Nick has got nothing to tie yeah. him there in Arkansas. Lloyd's still in prison, so I guess he's got to stay in prison. Uh, right. Stu, though, just finally broke out of the facility. Franny's entire family is dead, and she has a way out with Harold. Right. Um, who else is there? You know, Larry's got Rita. Larry is in Rita. But, I mean, he never, he's not in stuck York, in New York. But he's not he's, stuck there. His been. mom's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have any... No tie to New York anymore, so now they just got to figure out what they're. I feel like New York would be so dangerous to stay in. I can't even imagine. He's talking about going into bars and and then being abandoned and and stuff, and that's terrifying. It's June, and people are dead everywhere. Oh, it's it's got to smell smell so bad. Oof. Um, you know, it's way different than this happening in, like, say, January. Right. (laughs) Um, so that's that's a thing, you know. So there's a lot of things that are now in motion, and so you know, in the next segment, next segment's really going to be like, here's some of the action. I really, and I yeah. think that's the thing, like with Stu, is it just sets it up. It's like here's some action, like a little preface, and now it's like, okay, mm-hmm. what's going to happen? Yeah. I really, I, and Randall Flag is very interesting. I think mm-hmm. we were talking about this, and it he's the this is the first time he's mentioned in the Stephen King universe, right? Yeah, because this is the fourth book. Right. He's not in Carrie or Salem's Lot or The Shining. Right. We're at least we're pretty sure about Salem's Lot. I've never read it. Um, and I'm pretty sure he's not in The Shining. I've only ever yeah, seen no, like I... half the movie. Um, so it's a good introduce- introduction for a character that I know is this long-standing character in his series. Mm-hmm. He's got really interesting quirks. He's a really interesting characterization. And like the fact that he's a little superpower to magic is cool. Mm-hmm. The fact that it seems to be a bunch of regular people having to stand up to him is interesting. Also, when we were reading through chapter 26, there's this character named Roland Gibbs. Isn't that the name of the character in Gunslinger? No. 
Okay. Isn't Roland, though, Roland right? Roland is his name, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a character in Chapter 26 who's, like, named Roland Gibbs, uh, and he's a soldier. Yeah, and I was but, like, oh! Yeah, but, but Roland is a common name through that, but that's all. That's that's, that's where the commonality stops. So. Yeah, no, and I, I just wanted to make sure and yeah. see if it was something. And, something that you should make note of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm interested to see that. I'm just really interested to see how it develops to see if it wasn't on purpose or not mm-hmm. to see if like Randall did do it. I'm interested to see what his tie is to that radiology lab and the lab that Stu is in just mm-hmm. now. I'm interested to see if that was a sick person. Uh, I'm really interested to watch uh, Franny give birth to the antichrist or to Jesus himself. <laughs> it's one of the two. And it's interesting because it could either I mean, be, is it possible though that maybe it's just, you know, no. a baby? Nope. <laughs> not at all. There's okay. no possibility of that. All right. Um, and I'm excited for Nick to just continue to be Nick. He's good. He makes me cry. He's yeah, so well written. Yeah, he's he's I, such a sweetheart. Yeah, he's just a kind character, and that is established from the instant you meet him mm-hmm. that he is just a kind human. Yeah, the kind of people that we all want to meet. Yes, like that we want to surround ourselves with. Yes. Uh, and yeah, so that was my all first right. time through this week. Woo-hoo. Thank you guys for listening. Otto, Kim, that was incredibly interesting. Great job today. If you would like to support First Time Through, you can follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, or send us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash firsttimethrough to get exclusive early access, to get exclusive videos, and to become our exclusive friends. If that's interested to you, I'm interested. First Time Through, New Eyes on Castle Rock is produced by Empty Theater Productions. It's created by Kim Payne and Otto Mullins. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art.